You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Whip Smarties, we are releasing a special bonus episode today because there is a major election on Tuesday, March 3rd. If you heard people talking about Super Tuesday, that's what's up. And to my Los Angeles friends, we need you all to vote. If you're not in L.A., you should check to see what local elections are coming up for you because they really, really matter. And they matter especially when it comes to selecting our judges, guys. Which brings me to today's special guest, Tom Parsikian, who is running for L.A. Superior Court Judge. He's bright. He's honest. He has deep integrity, and over 30 years of experience that would make him such a valuable and much-needed addition to our judicial system. We need people like him to be part of our government. So take a listen, find out how we got to know each other, why he's such an amazing guy, and then get out to the polls and vote, because every vote counts. Hi, Tom. Hello. I'm so excited that you're here today. I am thrilled to be here. So for listeners at home, Tom Parsikian is one of the dads in my friend group and also happens to be running for judge here in 2020 in Los Angeles County. And you're one of my favorite people to have a holiday party with and also to talk about the state of the union with. And I'm just really excited that we get to unpack all of this stuff today. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. So you and I first met because your daughter, Lauren, is one of my best friends. And I remember the first time I came over for a football Sunday at at your house, you and your wife, Deb, and you guys are just the most gracious hosts always. Thank you. And, you know, even as a pack of kids who are now adults, some of whom have kids of their own, Mm -hmm. we love coming home to hang with you guys. 
A beautiful granddaughter. Mm, God, she's just the cutest. Yeah. Story's the best. And something that was really, really special this summer, we, myself and Aaron, your son-in-law and Lauren and and our friend Michelle and Brian, a whole whole bunch of really lovely humans helped throw a, a sort of kickoff event for your campaign. And it was so special to hear everyone telling stories about, you know, their relationship to you and their relationship to your family and and all of this sort of really beautiful personal stuff. And we got to talk about why judgeships are so important and what we should all really be aware of going into these election years about how the judges that are in these court systems around the country really help to determine the law, not just for their city or their state, but but really of, of how the legal landscape looks in America. And it was such a cool learning experience for me. And, and that's why I wanted you to come and talk to everyone who's listening to the podcast. Today. Yes. I'm so happy to have a discussion about this particular subject because you're absolutely right. You know, when people go into the election booth, the one thing they're really foggy about is when they get to the slate of judicial candidates. Mm. They don't know who they are. They don't know what their background is. And they either don't vote at all or they might vote because somebody has an interesting looking name or what Mm. have you. I mean, I've actually heard voters tell me that. But the one thing they don't know really is what to do. And we've tried to run a campaign to inform voters about judicial elections, because Mm. you're absolutely right. They affect, you know, politicians who run for elective office, they come and go. Some of them have term limits. They they have to go by law. Mm. Others may retire or what have you, but they come and go. Judges are on the bench forever, whether or not they're on the federal bench where Mm. they're appointed and then confirmed they're there for life. But even in state court, you have a judge on the superior court sitting for a term of six years. But rarely, if ever, does a sitting incumbent judge ever get elected out of office. It just doesn't Mm. happen. So they're really almost lifetime appointments as well. And judges make decisions that affect people's day-to-day lives. Mm. And I tell people, you know, in Congress or in their state legislatures, they pass laws and they affect people's lives. But judges interpret the law. So when there's a dispute about something, Mm. the final word is in the judiciary. So if the House of Representatives is in a fight with the Senate or what have you about something, or whether people are challenging a state passed law or a federal passed law, at the end of the day, they get the final word in the judiciary. Mm-hmm. That, and really, that's what upholds the power and the stability in our government is that we have a place, a final place out of the three co-equal branches of government where you can go to get the final word. And that word becomes the law, because they're interpreting the law and they're telling you what the law is. Mm. And so the decisions that they make are so profound. You know, I call the superior court, which is a trial court, the court of consequence, Mm. because it's where people get decisions, judgments that affect them so profoundly. It's so consequential, you know, so it can affect their personal freedom. Mm. So somebody standing before you There's a judge sitting on the bench, one person, and he or she is going to make a decision that could affect this person's very liberty, or they could be making a decision that could affect their financial security in a profound way, Mm. could be a a way that's almost dispositive uh, of their security, financial security. Uh, It could affect their reputation. 
those kinds of decisions. It could affect their family relationships. Mm. All of these things happen in a courtroom and it's not a panel of people, it's a trial judge that's sitting in judgment. And those uh, judges, even when there's a jury there, have tremendous effect on the jury by the decisions that they make during a trial proceeding because the juries you know, have trust in the judge and mm-hmm. they can lead a jury's thinking in a little bit of a way. And so those decisions, even with the jury, are going to have a profound effect on the people standing before a judge in the courtroom. So what I tell people is, think about this. When you go to vote in an, any given election, you're voting for somebody running for president or you're voting for somebody running for governor or whatever it may be. But a judge, that person may affect you directly because the first time you ever have a brush up against the law or are involved in any legal proceeding could be standing in a trial court. Now, some people may only get there for traffic court <laughs> you know, mm. and never see a courtroom again, but people end up in courtrooms and it's kind of scary for them because there's a lot on the line. Yeah. So you want to put people on the bench that have empathy and understanding. And one of the other things I, I tell people when I speak is there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. I mean, sympathy mm. is where you feel sorry for somebody. Empathy means you've been there. You feel that. You know what they're going through. Mm. And I really think it's critically important that judges have experience, life experience. I think sometimes, even on the federal bench as well, judges that are uh, appointed or elected need to have some years under their belt. I always get concerned when I see somebody a little bit too young and ending up on the bench, not because they may not have the intellectual capacity or the you know, innate tools that they need, but you do need to live life, mm. to see people, to experience, even travel, getting to see different cultures around the world. You need to be around a little bit so that when you're sitting on the bench and you're making a determination about whether a witness is telling the truth or not, and judges do that. They make determinations on mm. whether a, you know, a particular testimony is truthful. They do findings of fact and they make determinations like that. You want that judge to be empathetic, to be intelligent, certainly, but to have lived a little bit so that they understand life experiences. So that is something that makes me so curious because you've come to this place in your life where you realize that that adage, if not us, then who, really rings true for you. And I'm curious about the beginning, you know, how, how we got here because you are an incredibly empathetic and incredibly intellectual person who does have so much experience under your belt. But before we get into why you're running, I, I'm curious, where did it all start? Can, can you tell us where you grew up? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Mm. I was the son of a wonderful man, my father, who passed away 12 years ago. He was such a beloved public servant. Mm. This he was, was the, a he yeah. was a highly decorated World War II oh, combat veteran. Yeah, right? he was he was the real deal. <laughs> My dad, he at the age of twenty one, and I think about that. You know, I have three children. I have a son who's twenty six, and I think about somebody who's even five years younger than that. In nineteen forty two, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, because they didn't have an Air Force at the time. It was part of the Army. Mm. And he became a pilot 
a navigator and a bombardier all wrapped in one. He trained, you know, all over this country before going overseas. And then he was stationed in Okinawa and he remained there for two and a half years because he actually didn't come back until 1946 because he was on the occupying force to keep the peace. Mm. So he was in the war for a long time. He was a combat veteran. His forward squadrons, these flights of, 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 of flyers, would go out on these dangerous missions where sometimes a third of them would not return. And mm. he was leading them because he was a, became an officer, leading these forward squadrons in battle. And bronze stars uh, multiply of all his records. He has mm. an incredible career fighting for this country and came back uh, from that, I think a different person um, in terms of, you know, when you, when you give up your life for the country like that and fight and see life and death, you know, over and over again for years, he came back and wanted to commit himself to public service. So I grew up in New Jersey in a household where I had a father who came from that background. He was born in 1921. He grew up during the depression and he was the child of refugees. My grandparents were from Armenia and they escaped the Armenian massacre of 1915 to 1920, the Ottoman Empire mm. massacre, which by the way, incredibly, I'm running for judge in seat number 150, mm -hmm. 150. And why that means a lot to me is I call it kismet because I'm running in seat 150 and the US Senate just passed resolution 150, recognizing the Armenian genocide wow. a month ago. And this happened after I was placed into seat 150. And, you know, it's just one of those things about whether you believe in numbers and how they affect things in life, you know, mm. that number was so impactful. I got a call the next day from a sitting judge here in Los Angeles who was born in Armenia, has an incredible background uh, getting herself to this country and her education and whatnot. And she's a judge here in LA and she called me and she was emotional because I'm running in seat number 150 and Resolution 150 just passed. For the first time, recognizing that the Armenian genocide actually occurred, happened at all. Right. And it's been a long fight for the Armenian community to, uh, to get that recognition. And it's important. Yeah, incredibly important to honor what communities have gone through. And, and it strikes me as so, I mean, moving really that your, you know, your father enlisted to fight against a genocide that was happening during World War II to fight against what was being done to the Jews and, and that you come from this heritage of having escaped the genocide of your own people. Yeah, and incredibly, Hitler, and he wrote this down, it's not just anecdotal, mm. when he tried to rationalize what he was going to do, which was try to exterminate a race of people, that being the Jewish culture mm. uh, at, and race at that time that uh, he said whoever remembered the armenian genocide wow. yeah he, he actually wrote that that's in history so he used the armenian massacre which was that one and a half million armenians were killed they were marched out into the desert men and boys were separated from their mothers and daughters mm. and they were summarily executed tortured murdered i mean it, it's if you read the history, it's, it's, it's very hard to even talk about. My, my mm -hmm. grandparents were from the cities of Erzurum and Dikranargert, which are two cities which are now in eastern Turkey, but at the time were western Armenia. They were particularly hard hit mm -hmm. 
Mm. I mean, really just tremendous atrocities. So Hitler looked back on that and said, well, that happened. We're, you know, now we're what, 20 years later or what have you. And, and he went about trying to exterminate, uh, you know, a race based on that history. So mm. to have it not be recognized in this country that it even existed mm. was something that the the community, the Armenian community fought for. And I will say I'm really thrilled that both the House in Resolution 296 and then the Senate by unanimous consent, which means mm. there were no objections. And that's a bipart- you know, bipartisan, I think it's 5347 right now, mm. Republican, that Senate passed uh, unanimously Resolution uh, 150 to recognize the Armenian genocide. So my father, as you said, you know, was a son of refugees, joined and grew up during the Depression. So grew up during a time when there was hardship, tremendous struggle. His father passed away when he was 10 years old. Mm. So his mother raised four boys, the eldest of which died on the kitchen table, bleeding to death from a tonsillectomy. No. This was, yeah, at the time they did that. They gave, you know, they did operations in the kitchen back in the 19, late teens, I guess, or early 20s. She lost her eldest son on the kitchen table, never recovered from it. I will honestly tell you that as I hear the, you know, the the history of my family, I was something she never quite got over. And she had three more boys. So she raised them, my father being the youngest born in 1921 and had to raise them as a seamstress in New York City. Mm. She was one of these sweatshop workers that you see in the old documentaries or, or, or hear about in stories, uh, women working who could only get protections eventually from the garment workers unions who were trying like hell to organize mm-hmm. and get rights for people who were working for pennies an hour. Mm. That was my grandmother working to make enough money to raise three boys, couldn't do it. So her eldest son had to work as well, you know, to raise his brothers along with with my grandmother. So it's just an incredible history to think that my grandfather grew up, or my father, I'm sorry, grew up during that time, during the depression, the son of refugees who escaped a genocide Mm. and then said, I'm gonna fight for this country at the age of 21 risk my life for a country that at that time, he all he saw was, you know, hardship mm. in the depression and coming from a family who had escaped, you know, this, this hor- horrific horrors and probably motivated him to say he's in a better place and he's going to fight for this better place mm. and did. And so I think that's what shaped his worldview. Although I will say, Based on reading his letters, his voluminous letters, which it is amazing that we actually have, that he wrote to his mother from overseas during the war. Mm. And I have them. There, there are scores of them. Reading his letters to his mother, what I came to, to realize about my father is this was who he was as a person. He innately was uh, just a person with tremendous empathy, integrity, and character. Mm. I know your good friend, Lauren, my daughter, knew my dad um, in her younger years and could tell you the feeling that she got about him as a human being. And so Mm. this is the kind of person that I grew up emulating and hoping to even approach that kind of person. I could never be him, but what a a standard to set, you know? And And it's so so, interesting and beautiful to me that his standard 
he began it so young, but he came home to become a trial attorney, eventually a judge, eventually a state senator in New Jersey. And I, I wonder, you know, when you talk about knowing that you wanted to strive to be a man like your father, in hindsight, do you think about the the values he passed down, the lessons that he taught to you, what what it was like to watch him consistently strive for deeper levels of public service? Yes, I did because I watched him when he was giving speeches mm. as a young boy. And it was so moving because I would be watching people's faces in the audience and the, the, the kind of love that you could see from people when they saw him speak. And mm. I would listen to him as a young boy growing up and, and watching him out on the campaign trail, depending on what he was doing. It was so inspiring to me because I, I and from his discussions with me one-on-one, I would, I learned that, and I think this is what gives me the facility to do this because people say, well, how can you be a judge? I mean, don't you bring biases and prejudices that everybody has in everyday life to the bench? How can you wash that away? And I tell people, believe it or not, I can. And it's, it's hard to convince them because think about that. How, how do you do that? But I think it was from growing up, seeing that and learning that from my, from my father. He, he, he was the kind of person that took everyone in mm. at, face value, at face value. In other words, there was no prejudices, preconceived notions whatsoever. And I watched this year after year after year, seeing him interact with people amazed how no matter what the person's background, no matter you know where they came from, what their preferences were, their gender, their financial position, whatever it was, he had such a big heart and such deep empathy for people. And mm-hmm. I could see when he interacted with them that he took everyone for who they were. There was no angle whatsoever. And that's what I saw. And that's what I feel grew inside of me, you know, through learning from him. So mm, um, these are the beautiful. things that, you know, you know, you hope, you know, you can do, um, uh, certainly in a courtroom. Do you have a favorite memory of your dad? Oh, God, there's so many memories. <laughs> you know, I think uh, it's funny. We were talking about watching him make speeches and whatnot. I th- think one of the memories that I have that was so impactful, and I might have spoken about it last August when we did the kickoff event, was when my dad ran for governor back in the 1960s, he was endorsed by Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And the way I was talking about him when he would make speeches and whatnot, you know, Bobby Kennedy had this kind of effect on people. And I think that's why they connected and why he endorsed my dad. And they they, they were kind of similar kindred spirits in that way. And you know, when my dad, I'll, I'll never forget in June, 1968, I was about 10 years old and, you know, we were on the East coast and we lost Kennedy here in Los Angeles. I think it was June 6th, downtown LA at the ambassador hotel. Mm-hmm. And I remember the next morning, both my parents coming in my room and I was in bed and woke me up to tell me that what had happened, that we lost Bobby Kennedy. And it was like, it was almost like a thickness in the air. You could feel it. It was, I felt at that moment that there was, it was like the world had kind of paused on its axis in a sense. That sounds trite maybe, but it really did. There was, there was this feeling that something major had changed at that moment, mm. that we were going to be set off into a different trajectory 
from that moment on. Things were going to change. And it felt a little unsettling at the time. But my dad, and this was a tremendous moment, you know, for our family and the country and the world, sitting down and talking to me about, and I was only 10 years old, about what had just happened because this was a, a violent episode where we lost a beloved figure and talking to me about how do you process that and move on to a young child. Hmm. Um, and, you know, his, his strength at this moment of tremendous national uh, sadness and his grace, in a sense, at this time, gave me a feeling that you can process these kinds of things and try to move on from them in a positive way, mm. um, even when you have tragedies like this. And because sometimes you can get really down mm. on something and really feel despair, mm. which I think today in the country, I see that as I go around on the campaign trail, I see a lot of despair and mm. people kind of feel like they're losing hope or maybe they don't have hope. And so I think it's important, like he kind of rallied my little 10-year-old body at the time, mm. not to feel such despair and to somehow know that the world was not going to end at that moment. And so when I see that out there, when I'm just doing my thing here, I try to bring that into the room, mm. you know, that there are things that we can do that, you know, to not sit back and just let it go, mm -hmm. but to really try to make a change for the positive and don't despair and lose hope. So I guess to answer your question, I always like to circle back to the question after a long answer, but to answer your, the call of your question, it's that it's, I guess it's my, that memory was so profound and how he handled it. And it was a teaching moment for me that I carry mm. to this day. That's so beautiful. And how special that you get to channel one of your favorite memories of your dad when you're out doing your own work. Yeah. What about your mom? What was she like? Oh, wow. My mom it was, uh, you know, first of all, raised four kids. I was the youngest of four, three mm -hmm. older sisters. She and my dad were married in 1950, all the, until the day he died in 2008. Of course, they're a long, long marriage, you know, 58 years until he passed away. She's still alive today. Mm -hmm. She's going on 93 years of age. She is an inspiration as she gets up in the morning and drives herself to the senior center to meet with her friends every morning at the age of 92 going on 93. And she went in to the Department of Motor Vehicles last year to take her te written test and got 100% on this test at the age of 91 going on 92 it was such, it blew them away at the DMV so much that they came out from the back room where they do these tests to tell me that your mother just got 100% on a written test and they were so so shocked by it. And so I told her, I said, well, there's there's no question that you are fully here 100% uh, and you are with us. So she's a woman of great, strong fortitude. Her parents are an incredible story. Mm. Her father came to this country on a boat across the sea from Europe, landed on Ellis Island. So did my grandmother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well. How cool. His name, his plaque is on the wall on Ellis Island. And he came through. It would have been, he came, he was born in 1898. Wow. He came over at the age of 12. So in 1910, he came across the, the country at the age of 12. He had one relative here to, to be the contact. 
The idea was, as many immigrants do in this country, can he work and send money back to the old country to help his parents who were living in impoverished mm-hmm. at the time? My grandfather worked basically as an indentured servant as a young child for a family on a farm for several years. Then when he got of age, he worked in the coal mines in Western Pennsylvania, married my grandmother at a very young age. My grandmother was probably 18 years old at the time when they got married. And he worked in the coal mines in in Western Pennsylvania for several years until she felt she was going to lose him in the mines and convinced him to leave and go to New York City, where he worked in heavy construction as an iron worker. And he worked on the Empire State Building. (gasps) On the Chrysler building. Oh, the and, Chrysler yes. building. And those buildings have my grandfather's hands in them. Wow. And he worked in these iconic structures as an immigrant to this country. And boy, was he a proud immigrant. Oh, my God. Uh, working in New York in, in, these, in these places. And my, my grandfather was a member of the original CIO. Before it was the AFL-CIO, it was the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is what that stands for. In the 1930s, I guess it was. It became the AFL-CIO, I think, in 1958. They merged, but it was the CIO back in the 1930s. And I can tell you that I probably wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for unions. Because between my Mm -hmm. father's side and my garment worker grandmother on one side working in the sweatshops in New York and the, the protections that they fought for to just get a wage that you could survive on, maybe. Mm. And then my grandfather on the other side, who was a coal miner and then an iron worker in New York, mm. and the fights that they waged back then to try to get a living wage, mm-hmm. that's what they basically survived because yeah. of those fights. I mean, people today you know, you hear people talk about unions and sometimes they try to politicize them and denigrate them and use them as a political weapon. Yeah. Forget about the politics. This is about survival. Yeah. These were people coming together to try to see if you could survive mm-hmm. and they banded together to try to fight for that. And about what's fair. Yeah. And it's so interesting because if I may sidebar us for a moment, yeah. I I've had people out on campaign trails ask me why I'm so passionate about health care and making sure that we have universal health care and, and that we treat our citizens as well as we as they're treated in other countries that are on par with us economically. And I always remind people, I say, how do you think I have health care? I'm in a union. Right. The Screen Actors Guild, yeah. that my union provides my health care. Yeah. And when I look at the other union workers on sets, you know, people think Hollywood's fancy. They forget that there's like four award shows a year, but for the most part, we're on sets and it's a bunch of union guys and us. Yeah. And we're a bunch of union kids. Yeah. And it's like, I'm on sets with the construction workers union, with the transportation unions, with the camera guys. And they're, everybody is only there and only protected because of these organizations. Yeah. And I feel like, Sometimes people, and, and especially people who, who maybe don't have the family history that you do, forget that the only reason any of us has a, a shot even at a fair shake is because there were, there were organized, because there were workers who had the courage to organize and fight for rights. Right. You know, it's the concept, collective bargaining is, mm. is, is how they do it. You're talking about either the Screen Actors Guild or equity or what used to be after us now SAG-AFTRA, mm-hmm. that is an AFL-CIO guilt. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, actors and actresses who work for a certain period of time, then maybe they don't work for a certain period of time. You know, most actors 
are in and out of work. Mm-hmm. And when they're, if they didn't have the, the health care afforded to them by the AFL-CIO, Screen Actors Guild, say for instance, they wouldn't have health care. Yeah. They wouldn't have basic health care. Yeah. And that's that the only, re- the only way they got that is under the collective bargaining concept. The idea that people, because you can't do it alone because you're, you're on an unequal bargaining position. Yeah. You know, you can't do it. So you collect together with other people as a group. So you have a little bit of power yeah. so you can equal, you know, you can level out that table a little bit. Yeah. It's like you got to get a group of Davids to fight the Goliath. That's it. And it's corporate culture. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. No. You know, when people talk about that or they talk about concepts of, you might've heard of the term interest group liberalism. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is because you know, people talk about the, the the phrases conservative and liberal and whatnot, and sometimes they don't really know what it really means. Mm. But, I mean, the terms like liberalism, okay. I mean, the concept there was way back, people on their own couldn't fight for themselves because they didn't have the money or the power to do that. Mm. So in a capitalist society, which is what our society is, and everybody wants everyone to do well and succeed as as best as they can. But there are also people who can't get a leg up and can't survive. So how do they do that? Well, they they group together with others. And that's what interest groups are. It's the only way they can do it. Mm -hmm. So they get together with others and they collect together and try to get a powerful voice as a group. That's really all it is. It's not a negative thing at all. And a lot of people try to cast shade on that. You know, the concepts of people gathering as groups and mm-hmm. fighting for their rights, whether they're protesting, whether they're, you know, in the streets protesting or whether they're collective bargaining as a group or whatever it is. It's very American. You know, it's something to be proud of that we in our country can do that mm-hmm. and succeed at doing that and fight for those things like getting an agreement where you have health care. Yeah. You know, so these are, yeah. you know, I, I don't, you know, as, as a, as running for judge, as you know, it's nonpartisan. And, you know, I, I try to speak to all sides, you know, Republicans and Democrats or what have you. I try to tell them, don't let yourselves be divided. You know, you can have different opinions or whatnot, but don't hate each other, mm. you know, you know, because there are a lot of forces out there that try to divide, you know, in the country. So, yeah. um, you know, don't, don't look at the other side as the boogeyman or what have you, you know, try to, you know, understand each side. Of course, judges have to do that. Yeah. When people come into the courtroom. Well, and that's where that mixture of empathy and intellect comes in. I I I sidetracked you. We were talking about your mom and then we yeah. got into into this stuff, but I think it's so cool that you know, she grew up with a father who helped to build New York. Yeah. What what was her kind of role in your family? What do you, what do you feel like you learned from your mom? Well, she was the matriarch. I mean, my mom was solid. A mm-hmm. very strong woman. I mean, that's why she's still sharp as a tack at Noragon on 93, yeah. right? <laughs> Comes from very good stock. I mean, she's just really strong, uh, bright uh, woman. So when I say matriarch, you know, she raised four boys while she had a husband, my dad, who was, you know, a judge at one time, who was a senator at one time, a state senator in, you know, in New Jersey. Yeah. He was the director of motor vehicles. So he was, he was, serving the public, which takes a lot of your time, right? Mm. So she had to raise four kids in a way that we all felt everything was going beautifully, you know, keeping things together. And and she did, you know, we, I never felt at any time that there was a lack of contact with my dad or with my mom or anything like that. And that was her, 
she was a very strong woman. Mm. You know, I grew up as a feminist because I grew up with three older sisters. I had no brothers yeah. and I actually have two daughters and a son. So I'm just constantly surrounded by by women. In fact, even when we have cats and dogs, they always seem to be female in my household. So I, no matter what it is, and people say, are you a feminist? I always say, I guess I am. Because I grew up in a, in, a, in a female household and my mom was a very strong figure and still is. Mm. And so- you know, for me, I've always tried to encourage women, you know, to be involved, um, mm. you know, in politics and whatnot and make mm. their voice heard. That's always been really important to me because I'm surrounded by beautiful, bright, intellectual women and and they just seem to always do the right thing and know the right thing to do. So with my mom, she raised us uh, in that kind of a household, you know, just, you know, everyone felt loved cared for, mm. you know, that she was always there. And and she also imparted that kind of empathy and understanding for people, same concepts. Her and my dad, you know, it's really funny. People don't believe me when I tell them this, but it's true. My parents were married for 58 years. And I tell people that I never saw them argue. Now, when I tell people that, they say, oh, well, that, that means they argued behind closed doors or that's not possible, or that's they, I've had people tell me that's not healthy, that that can't be right or what whatnot. But it's not that. These two people, sometimes two stars come together from the sky hmm. and there was some destiny there. And whatever the long-term plan was for them to come together, it happened. And that just in my life, there was just tremendous love between them. And it wasn't a fake kind of insincere love. I mean, this is true. I mean, it was just always there and there was just no friction. So they got along so well. They saw eye to eye just on everything. They loved being together. They loved traveling together. They loved each other's company. Mm. So they loved traveling with friends, but they loved traveling together alone as well because they loved each other's company. So the household I grew up in was that kind of household. Now, some people say, well, Tom, that was an unrealistic household to grow up and you couldn't possibly you know, match that. But- I've been married for 35 years and I feel the same way about my wife. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, it can happen and can be done. Um, but I think, you know, to answer your question though, my mom, you know, set that kind of feeling in our house mm. with our kids growing up. And, and I, I think it was it, it just a great home to, to be in. That's so cool. Yeah. Did you think that from an early age you had an inkling you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps? You know, that's interesting. I had two paths. I had the path, my academic path, um, you know, through high school, I was doing well. And I ended up studying undergraduate at Harvard University uh, before being out of school for two years in between uh, when I was on a soap opera in New York to live. Um, so you're wondering, I love how, this how part did that of your happen? Story. I know, but it's true. <laughs> what can I tell you? Uh, because I was doing plays in, in high school and that was, so I, you know, I was doing really well, but then I was also in the arts. And for some reason in this country, never the twain shall meet. I don't know what it is about our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to Europe and the, the arts are so encouraged, you know, by the, the government, you know, they're encouraged, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's in France or whatever it is, you know, they, they encourage the arts, you know, here they do, but not really. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you have to have private foundations, help fund the arts and whatnot. And, mm. and there's kind of a concept of a feeling, I think, here 
uh, now that we're talking about the arts, I'll just tell you, you know, it's kind of like, well, you're just going to, we're not going to regard you as an artist until you make it, quote unquote, you know, that's not so true elsewhere here. You know, you get that feeling. So being in the arts, which I was in high school and also doing real, well academically was two divergent paths that it was not something, it was something I had to make a decision. So I hmm. I got into a really good college and there I was studying up there, but I was still doing plays and I was doing a play in Boston and somebody saw me and one thing led to another. And the next thing I know, I'm being signed by the Willie Morris Agency in New York and thought, what do I do? So I took a leave of absence to see where that would go. And within a couple of months, I was on One Life to Live, which is ABC Soap. And at that time, this was 1979, soap operas were really big. They were the biggest. They were the biggest. And ABC was huge. And I think our show was like number three. And I think there were 12 soaps at the time. Most were in New York. And so we were shooting there in New York. And I did that for, for a couple of years. And then, because I had promised my grandfather, the one who worked in coal mines, who said to me, promise me that you'll go to college and finish. And I mm -hmm. promised him that I would. I could not go back on that. So when my contract came up on One Life to Live, I dropped everything and I went back. I transferred to Columbia University mm. so I could be in New York. And that's where I finished. I got my degree because of my promise to my grandfather. And so I did that. Mm. Um, I went to study at Oxford University on scholarship. I had written an essay on Virginia Woolf, a little known book that she wrote called The Waves. I mean, most people know To the Lighthouse and Mrs. Dalloway and all the, the things mm. that you get on your syllabus in college, but there's some more obscure writings of hers mm. uh, that are really brilliant. Virginia Woolf was the kind of the original stream of consciousness writer before mm. William Faulkner in this country and you know took up the mantle of stream of consciousness writing. She wrote a book called The Waves, which is so brilliant because... The way it is, I, I like to, to, to describe it this way. When you're reading it, you don't know what you're reading yet. And that's what's meant to be. So you're reading it and it's a stream of words. So you're now, you're now in a film in a sense in your mind and you're riding along mm -hmm. this visual through words and you don't know what's happening, but something is affecting you as a reader. And you're reading about someone whose feelings, you're reading about their feelings being warm and they're looking at some shimmering globe, some orb of light, but you don't know what it is yet. And you can see it's kind of precariously holding its position and it has light reflecting in it. And the person, the, the person in the book who's relating this in, inner feeling to you as a reader is feeling this as well. Hmm. And all of a sudden, the camera starts pulling back. And I say camera because when you're reading this, it's like this. So the camera's pulling back more and more and more and farther away from this glimmering orb of light. And what are you finding out what it is? Well, when it finally comes back far enough as you're reading along in this stream of consciousness, you realize that it's a young child laying down in the grass, staring at a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Oh. And the feeling going through this young child's heart in the warmth of the sun, staring at a drop of dew on a blade of grass. And to me, wow. that's brilliant literature. And so anyway, I wrote an essay about this and um, I got picked to go study at Oxford and I studied the Bloomsbury group there, you know, Conrad and, and Lawrence and, um, and James Joyce and, and Virginia Woolf. But my focus was, was really Virginia Woolf because I just 
she, she's so brilliant. Um, mm. And so anyway, came back and uh, from that and uh, went back into the business before I became a lawyer. Did some films with Tony Curtis, who is legendary, as you know, um, and and some you know some great actors. Met my wife doing one of the one of the films I did, and mm. um, thirty five years later, and three children later, and a granddaughter later, we're here we are. And then you know went on to law school after leaving that business. So, so cool. Yeah. Do you think? Because I wonder when I listen to you talk about that story, and and really when you tell stories in general, you are such a storyteller. And and when you discuss this Virginia Woolf book and you talk about waves and 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 what it was like to realize it was the child, what I hear is the ability that you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You're in the story. You're feeling the feelings. You realize who it is. You see from their perspective. You talk about, you know, working with Tony Curtis or law school, the things you learned from your parents, there's so much about your life that has informed you by looking at the world through other people's eyes. And it's striking me in this moment, as well as I know you, I'm realizing I'm learning something new, that of course you're such a phenomenal person to have in our legal sphere because you truly take the time to look at what's happening through the eyes of the people experiencing it. Yeah, I th- thank you. And I do feel that way, sincerely. Mm-hmm. And when people say, why, why are you running for judge rather than something else, you know, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. I say because it really is necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really believe that when you make a decision that's going to affect people day to day, that you have to have that empathy. That, mm. that, and that's why I said earlier on, I really think it's important for people to have life experience, years of, of seeing so many different things before they're going to sit in a position to make a decision. Or if you're on the appellate court, mm-hmm. if you're writing an opinion, which is where I could very well end up being, and I would like to someday, because you're then writing the law as precedent. Yes. That others will follow and say, this is the law that Judge or Justice Barsikian wrote. He he wrote this. Mm-hmm. So who's the person that's writing that? You know, who's the person? And even on the Supreme Court, you know, when an opinion comes down, you know, one person authors the opinion on the Supreme Court, others concur or join in it, but one person authors it. Yeah. And so who is that person? You know, who's the person who is saying this is who you can love, or this is where you can travel to, or this is this is how you will be able to be, this is how you are to behave in our mm. society. They're dictating that. Who is the person who's handing down that decision? Boy, you want that to be somebody who really has that kind of empathy and deep feeling. Because when they're writing, you want them to be writing for people generally and Mm. for that but through their heart yeah you know through their heart you know because there are i mean i again i've I've been practicing law for this will be my 30th year next year and i tell people you know when i talk about you know my experiences in the law i said look there are you know a lot of people on the bench thousands and thousands and whatnot i've been in and out of court both trial court and appellate i've done appeals as well 
And I say to people, why, you know, what drove me to want to be a judge? I said, one of the things is that I felt I came out of the courtroom too many times shaking my head, mm. saying, did this particular judge even read my papers? Wow. Even read my papers. So, so you've yeah. been in courtrooms where you're arguing a case and you realize the judge on the bench doesn't even know what the case is. <laughs> Pretty much. Wow. I mean, I, the reason I hate to say that is because I'm, I am running to become part of a group of people that I'm now saying something that's critical. But you know what? That has to be done mm-hmm. because my, I, you know, I want to be an active judge in a sense yes. that I want to improve the judiciary, mm-hmm. whether it's by my own, you know, being a, an example and attracting people like-minded to the bench that over time will spread out and improve the general judiciary or how I write, you know, Mm -hmm. but yes, that to answer your question, yes, I have come out of court saying to myself that it is clear to me that this particular jurist did not read my papers, didn't, was not prepared Mm. to make a ruling yet ruled, yet ruled. Mm. So that's concerning. Um, mm-hmm. Because as again, as I said earlier on, these decisions can affect people's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want to make sure if you're going to be a judge, you're prepared, you you, you know, that you're going to give the, the you know, you, there are two sides to every case, of course. that you're going to give them their full due, their full hearing. So if you're going to be a public servant and you're taking the position of somebody who's going to render a decision, you want to give them at least the respect that you're going to read all of their papers and all of their arguments. You're certainly not going to agree with everybody because you have to make a decision ultimately. Sure. And your job is to apply the law to the facts as a judge. Mm-hmm. But you've got to give them that respect. So I'm curious when you talk about your, you know, your 30 years practicing law to get here, I wonder about a couple of things really that come to mind. What what was it like to argue in a courtroom for the first time? Hmm. And, and I want to know about complex litigation and sure. and I would love for you to walk me and everyone listening through what that what that really means. I'm I'm curious about what's been happening for the last 30 years, I yeah. guess. So so how did it all begin? Well, it's funny because it really flowed from my background in the arts. Mm. Because remember when I said before there are two separate paths? Mm-hmm. Well, for me they ended up becoming married. And they came together and it became a synergy or synthesis in some way. Because even though back then I thought, my God, why do I have to be, why do I have to choose to be only an artist or an academician? You know, why do I have, why do they have to be mutually exclusive? And I found a way that they're not. Mm. And that's what I'm doing. That's where we are today. Because to answer your question, my first time arguing in court, well, I came, I was standing where most people are quivering because it's the first time standing in a courtroom, whether it's before a judge and you're arguing a, a, what's called a motion, which is a paper, and you're arguing your case for this particular ruling, mm. or whether you're in a trial, which is if it's a bench trial, that means the judge is deciding alone, or if it's a jury trial with a jury, you're standing in front of a bunch of people. So how is this synthesis? How is this marriage happening for me? Well, I am now in a sense, performing in the courtroom, but it's real. Mm. The script is not written and make-believe. It's it's real. So I have to convince, like an actor would have to convince, 
an audience, I have to convince a judge or a jury, there's your audience, of your position. And that's what actors do. Mm. They learn their part. They live their part. They then present it in their performance, and they have to convince ultimately the audience of the reality, of the realness, if you will, Mm -hmm. of what their performance is. That's what a lawyer, a good lawyer does in the courtroom. Their script is uh, is the facts, and they write their opening statements and their closing statements, which is their argument. In closing, it's certainly the argument. And that is a script that they're following, and they're presenting it and performing it. So my first time, I actually was very calm because I had come from the arts and I'd come from a position of having to perform on stage in New York. I, you know, I did a stage before as well. And, and uh, uh, then now I'm in a courtroom. And so the senior attorneys, when I was a young attorney, the senior attorneys would <laughs> talk about how is it that you went in there and won that argument? You just started here or what have you. But I, I think it's really because I was able to marry those two things. I was able to be very comfortable. Mm and find the truth in what I was arguing yeah, and present that and convince the audience, which here was a judge, of that truth. Mm. And so now, from that first moment on to the next 30 years, which led into the various kinds of litigation I did, which did ultimately lead to most of it being complex litigation, and I'll explain what that is, all of that work, I, I then was able to, to grow Marrying those two concepts, the, the ideas of, you know, the arts and, the, and academia, bringing them together in the law, because the law is an art, you know, it's an art, uh, and, and to apply that art, you know, in a courtroom or, or in an appellate court where you're arguing an appeal from a trial court decision, mm-hmm. which I've done in state as well as in federal court in Washington, D.C. I had the honor of, of arguing actually against Paul Clement, the former solicitor general who was the Solicitor General of the United States under George Bush. He argued all of the uh, White House's arguments, if you will, in front of the Supreme Court. Anyway, we I had an appeal one-on-one against him, and he gave me the highest compliment by walking across afterwards and shook my hand and said that was really a brilliantly argued argument, Mr. Persikian. Mm. <laughs> but I was, this was years ago, but I, I felt so honored to have somebody really uh, give me that kind of a compliment. But anyway, so in my in my work, what complex litigation is, in the law, there are cases. Mm. So you have, you know, re- regular cases that everybody knows about, whether it's an injury or whether it's a medical case or mm-hmm. whether it's a contract dispute. But there's a thing called the complex panel. And that's where cases go that are not just so simple. Mm. You know, it can be cases where there could be so many law firms involved because there are so many parties involved that they're naturally in this big big web of mm. issues. And it can also be issues that are multiple as well. And so the courts sometimes determine to assign something to the complex panel. And those judges are typically those that are in a position, you know, intellectually, his, uh, experience-wise, in a good position to handle those kinds of cases. So to be on the complex panel as a judge, you have to have that kind of background. As a lawyer, you have to be somebody who has really good organizational skills mm. to be able to take those you know, those cases which are kind of deep webs of issues and parties and be able to untangle them in a way and, and, and litigate them in a way where everybody is getting their fair hearing and everybody gets their fair justice, if you will. 
you know, in my cases, you know, some some matters like constitutional law cases sometimes yeah. end up on the complex panel. Hmm. You know, I've done a lot of eminent domain and inverse condemnation, which maybe is getting a little too technical, but it's a Fifth Amendment case. And in our constitution, there's one of the articles, the Fifth Amendment actually says that the government cannot take your property mm. without compensating you. They can't just grab it and take it. And so whether they're going to put a railroad through you know, your backyard or not, if they're going to do that and claim that they're going to take it by eminent domain, they're going to have to compensate you for that. Or if the government or one of its agencies damages your property by mistake, mm. maybe their power lines blow up or their water main mm. bursts underground and ruins your home. Well, you like know, what we just had here with the wildfires in PG&E. Yes. And that's actually going on right now. We have mm. gas being omitted at Portola Hills, I think it is. There's, you know, you can have gas escaping, you know, and the, the quasi-public entities, which are these gas companies, they're kind of not government, but then they're, but in a sense, they are quasi-governmental. Mm. You know, when those things happen or a water district, their water pipe blows up or what have you, mm. you know your house slides down a hill because the ground is now saturated. Those are called inverse condemnation cases. Interesting. The government didn't mean to take your property, but what we're saying is that they actually did take it by mistake. Mm -hmm. So an in inverse condemnation, that's also Fifth Amendment cases. And those are cases that I've become kind of a specialist in. It's something I've done many times. So I have a question, yeah. and, and forgive my ignorance, but when you hear people say, I plead the Fifth, hmm. you can you can plead the Fifth, where, whereas you deny, you refuse to incriminate yeah. yourself. How are those related? Uh, different part of that amendment. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's different yeah. articles or clauses yeah, yeah. in the Fifth Amendment, yes. and they're completely separate. Right. I was like, cool, what does pleading yeah. the Fifth have to do with your house? <laughs> what does that have to do with your house sliding down the hill? Why curious. Is, yeah. Got it. No, yeah. So would, would the water crisis in Flint fall under the... Fifth Amendment, um, fall under eminent domain. If I, if I was representing as, as an attorney, mm. somebody, let's say you lived there and your children were poisoned, if you will, mm. you couldn't drink the water because the lead was leaking into it because yeah. of the pipes, which are being managed by the state or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely, that's okay. what it is. And, that, and, and I'm glad to say that in California, we always do lead the way out here. We really do in terms of, uh, legislation that, you know, whether you call it progressive or whatever you want to call it, it's legislation that, in my view, is 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 the right legislation that's protecting people. You know, we, we have statutes that are good in that area, in that mm. inverse condemnation, for instance. Thank God that there are statutes that say, if you have one of those kinds of cases, like the Flint case, but it's here, and you have to go to court because of that, you get to recover your attorney's fees mm. and all the costs of experts getting, getting all the information about those pipes or whatnot, yeah. where normally you don't get those. Right. So most people can't afford to go to court, you see? So so again, that sort of goes back to this idea of us grouping to defend ourselves, to fight for fair wages, <laughs> to to fight a city that might perhaps be poisoning your water because most of us are not as powerful as the people who are in control. Right. And that's where the courts come in. Yeah. And take that, if you take those steps, the groups forming feel there's a need. In other words, people can't afford to go to court. Their kids are dying from lead poisoning, but they can't afford to hire a lawyer. They can't afford to hire expensive engineers to prove their case and save their 
lives, if you will, get clean water or whatever it may be. Mm. Well, in California, groups can form, go to Sacramento mm -hmm. and, and lobby the legislators to pass the laws that say, right. okay, now if you go to court against the government who did this to you, guess what? You're going to get your attorney's fees. You're going to get your expert fees. You're going to get your appraisal fees, mm. whatever they are. So you can do this. So what that leads to is attorneys taking the case and saying, right. you don't have to pay me. Don't worry about the cost because I know at the end we're going to be able to recover it. And I'm confident because we have a statute that says we can. Got it. And that's that's where that's where this thing happens. That's what allows lawyers to show up and do pro bono work for people in cases like this. Well, they can do the pro bono is a little different. So, so that, pro bono means you're never going to recover. Right. Yeah, pro bono. You're and really that's just volunteering. Yes. Contingency work. Ah, contingency Right. So that's where work, lawyers okay. say, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm a. You know, I'm a Ivy League educated lawyer. I have 30 years of experience. I'm great at what I do. And you know what? I'm gonna go win this case for you. And the client says, "But I couldn't possibly afford to do this." And they can say, "Don't worry about it." At the end. Yeah, you're not gonna have to pay me. I'm gonna. There's a good case. Got it. There's a statute out there that says, "Don't." Wor they're, they're gonna have to pay me separately. Not. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. And that's how these people get justice. That's really cool. Yeah. So. You've argued before the U.S. District Courts, the California State, and U.S. Courts of Appeal. You're a member of the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. What is it? What is it like? You know, as a person who's clearly so empathetic, you you've got all these accolades. You've been in all these courtrooms. Is it is it an emotional as well as an intellectual experience for you when you are arguing on behalf? Of people and their rights? Yes. Mm. <laughs> in a singular word, yes. Mm. I can tell you that when I sat there in Washington, D.C., in the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which is across the street from the White House, waiting for the justices to come out, it was a three-member three panel, to come out and take the bench. And this is a beautiful, ornate courtroom, and you sit there. And I was sitting there waiting, and I was alone, sitting at my table, and this was not long after my father passed away. Mm. And I was sitting there thinking, I wonder, you know, if my dad, if he could see me sitting here right now. And I got very emotional just sitting there. I really kind of welled up in a sense. I'm glad I was alone because <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't have a client there as, as one doesn't in, in an appellate court. You know, you sit there as a lawyer, as an appellate lawyer, you're pretty much alone. And I sat there and it was an empty courtroom because I got there early. And I was glad that I had that moment to feel that. Mm. But it was an emotional moment for me because I thought about him and his life and what he had done and that I followed him ultimately mm -hmm. and thought about what he would be thinking to see me sitting there about to have an argument made to this high court. And it was very moving and emotional for me, you know, to do that. I was very proud of that, of that moment. And... Mm kind of motivated me into my oral argument, yeah. Mm. When you think back on your career and the cases that you've argued, are, are, is there an example that stands out to you about the importance of justice and how it affects the everyday man or woman in America? Absolutely. It goes to those cases where I use the word inverse condemnation and I was explaining that. The reason I, I go back to that case, and I've done many of those, is because I'm representing really people who could never afford to be represented, first of all, in these kinds of cases. But these are 
everyday people of every kind. These are homeowners, mm. people whose biggest investment in their life is their home. It is, you know, and, and sometimes it's a very precarious thing. They're living month to month, whether it's on social security. I mean, I'm representing people who may be in their early 90s, who their home is their life security, mm -hmm. which has been damaged, which mm. is on the precipice of going down a hill because of what happened. Mm. They're going to lose everything. Or, or a young couple who have two young children who are getting by month to month. And the thing that's so wonderful about these cases is I represent a large group typically. So the group that I'm representing is, comes from all walks of life. So whether it's the elderly living on social security or whether it's the young couple with young children or anybody in between. And it's so interesting to me because they're from all, 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 uh, 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 the politics are not part of it. They're from all quadrants, if you will. So I'll have elderly, I'll have young, I'll have this party, that party, politics don't enter into it. They, they can be all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Because I spend so much time with them and they're so, it's, it's such an intimate representation because I go to their homes and I sit in their homes, their damaged homes, and I meet with them in their living rooms time and time again, that I get to know them, their families, you know, in their homes, which is very intimate um, and very private. And so I get to know who they are. You know, and, and maybe accidentally I get to know what their thinking is maybe on issues of the world. Mm. And I realize as I'm sitting there representing, say, a group of, say I'm representing a group of 20 homes, say in a particular mm. case. So I have 20 homes and these all these kinds of people and I get to know them all. I realize through that one case what our whole society is made up of, all these different kinds of people mm. who are all trying to get by day by day and they all have different thoughts and different dreams and, and whatnot, but they're all trying to get some justice, Yeah. right? And so they hand that case to me and I go in and I fight for them. So when I'm in the courtroom and I'm putting them up on the witness stand, I'm so proud when I put up a 90-year-old man who's testifying in front of a jury about his home being damaged because I have such confidence that the jury is going to rule in his favor, in their favor, because these are real people who need their help as a jury. Yeah. And in the end of the day, they did. That's so cool. It just makes me think about how you get to have these experiences over and over again that reinforce that really the whole point of all of this is for us to be in it together and to advocate for each other and and to help our neighbors, whether we yeah. know them or not. Yeah. And I, really and I really, really see that in these cases. Mm -hmm. So so what was it? When was the moment that with this 30-year career and all your experience with people, what was the tipping point where you said, you know, I was going to retire, but now I'm going to run for judge? Because those are very disparate yeah. realities. Yeah. So it's what true. did it? And I will – that's a good question because – as you know, I could make I could make that turn and mm. say, okay, let's wind it down. And there are probably a lot of people wondering, well, why did you do this? And there are people <laughs> who've expressed that to me. <laughs> so yes, there was a very bright line moment. It was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Mm. I was watching the Brett Kavanaugh hearings because it was somebody who was looking to become a Supreme Court justice. Very important to watch that. And I'm very interested, of course, as we've been talking, in knowing who
who wants to be on the court that's going to determine what the law is and how we are going to live our lives. Mm. So, of course, I'm going to be very interested in that. So I watched that hearing and what led up to it. And what I was so shocked about was more than anything else was the disrespect that I saw being displayed by the candidate who wanted to be on the Supreme Court, Mr. Kavanaugh. And I'm not even commenting. This is apolitical. This is not even having to do with party. I'm talking about basic, common, core decency. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, because he sat there attacking the people who were asking him questions, which is their job to do, to advise and consent, to, Mm. to, to find out, to inquire of a person's character and background to determine whether they're going to confirm that this person should be, have the honor of sitting as one nine of the nine justices on the Supreme Court who make the law in this country. Mm -hmm. That's their job as a panel of senators in this particular case. Mm -hmm. And so I watched the back and forth and the give and take and whatnot. And there was such disrespect. So what I meant by that is I saw, for instance, Amy Klobuchar was one of the people questioning him. Mm. I respect her and you know her background. She's quite a centrist, you know, by the way, um, mm. and was asking a former prosecutor, attorney general and whatnot. And she was asking questions to inquire, uh, you know, of this particular candidate in a very even, reasonable way. Mm-hmm. But he started attacking her personally, mm. you know, started talking about her father and alcoholism and whatnot. And then he started talking about himself and his enjoyment of beer and whatnot. And, this. and I started, and I was watching this and I said, am I watching a confirmation hearing for someone to be on the Supreme Court? Or am I watching some sort of you know, uh, I, I didn't, uh, you know, play that, you know, is being put on about something that happened someday. I, I it, To me, it was more, it was that unreal to me, wow. you know, and, and it really affected me. So I continued to watch and I watched questions being asked as they do, because when you have somebody vying to be on the Supreme Court, they do background, in, you know, investigations and they all do. Everything that comes up is then fair game. So there was questioning about things that he had done in his younger years and whatnot. Now, my personal experience is I you know, went to the kinds of schools in the Northeast, very similar to Mr. Kavanaugh. So I know these people. Mm. I, I, I've, I've seen the behaviors. You know what the culture is I in do. those institutions. I do, because I was there. Mm. And so I, I, I witnessed around the same time that he was there, we're, I'm actually older than him, but we're, we're pretty close to contemporaries. I, 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 when he spoke, when, when it was alleged what had happened back then and the kind of conduct that was going on back then, my response was, oh, of course, I know this. And what I did was I communicated with my colleagues and friends who I went to school with back then at these kinds of schools. Every single one of them said, of course, we all know that that is the kind of thinking, the kind of behavior that went on back then. Mm. And they didn't even question it. So that for those people who know that world and, and, and understood that to be the case, then you move into the hearings and you say, okay, if that is the case, let's see how this person handles the questions about 
what occurred back then and whatnot. Mm. And then you look at somebody's character. You look at their intellect because they're answering questions on the spot. I mean, it's, you know, you're not going to go to a room and think about drafting an answer. Right. You're going to answer on the spot. And that's what I was watching for. And I was not at all impressed with the way he was responding. He started, I don't know if he he was sincere about it, but he started getting emotional and, uh, you know, crying. and, 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 but it was, you know, goes back to, I guess I'm reaching back to my studying Shakespeare at Columbia University, but thou dost protest too much. You know, when somebody starts really protesting that way, you start to think, you know, is, you know, you know, how sincere is it? Mm. How truthful is it? So that was a battleground, that confirmation hearing. But my takeaway from it, and I tell people this, I don't have a problem with there being a battleground at a confirmation hearing. I don't have a problem with that. Okay, if people want to battle things out, the democratic way can be messy sometimes. That's what Obama used to always say. Democracy is messy. You know, he's right. You know, sometimes it can be messy. And sometimes, you know, you know, you have to go through those things to get to an end point. So I don't have a problem with there being, you know, a kind of a, a somewhat uh, argumentative hearing, especially someone trying to get on the Supreme Court. But what I don't like is to witness what I consider to be the lack of temperament, Mm -hmm. the lack of temperament that you certainly want to see in any judge, whether it's a trial court judge, which is what I'm running for, or a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. You want someone who has the temperament, Mm. you know, the even-handedness that they're going to impart Mm -hmm. justice equally. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see that. And so that, to me, was my bright line point. When I, when I witnessed that hearing, I said to myself, I have to do something about this because right now people are saying, get off the bench, get so to speak, you know, get off the bench, get off, get out of your seats and start to be the change, you know, start, mm. you know, stop doing, you know, whatever you're successful at, you know, it's time to enter public life to try to make a change. Yeah. And people started to do that. And you know, I saw people doing that, but when I saw that hearing, it pushed me off saying, okay, I need to get involved. And my involvement at that moment was very clear. It was, it has to be in the judiciary yes. because it wasn't just the Kavanaugh hearing, but for the last few years, the judiciary's been attacked mm-hmm. by politicians. I mean, we've seen- Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't let Merrick Garland take a seat. Again, a centrist. Yeah. You had the Senate holding up. Yes. A hearing. They're weaponizing our judicial system, which yeah. is meant to be a check on the Senate. Yeah. Not meant to be an arm of the Senate. The judiciary is supposed to be an independent branch of our government that helps us to have, I think about it like a stool. You yeah. know, we're supposed to have these three branches yeah. that hold us up. Mm-hmm. And when one branch becomes kind of hijacked by another, we've lost Let me democracy. take it one step further. There are three co-equal branches of government, the judiciary being one of them, of course, the legislative branch and the executive branch. But the judicial branch is sacrosanct because you have to have a place, a sanctuary where the other two branches battling out as much as they want to between executive and legislative, they have to have a place to go to have have it settled. Mm. And it has to be 
respected as the final word. And in the last few years, you've had attacks from one of the branches of government against the judiciary saying things like, this judge can't rule because he comes from a Mexican background, or this judge can't rule because he's, he's an Obama judge, or this girl can't judge because he's a Bush judge or whatever. And you had the chief justice coming out and saying, hey, we don't have political judges. You know, our judges are judges, you know. Now, having said that. But we do now, don't we? Yeah. Right now, I tell people we have to stop living in a five to four world. And what I mean by that is, and it happened today in the Ninth Circuit. We had, unfortunately, a ruling that I said before was seven to four. Well, it happened to be seven judges were from one party, four judges were from the other party. In the Supreme Court, you'll have five judges for one party, four judges from the other party. In the year 2000, you had the presidency determined, not by the electorate, but by the Supreme Court, because they made the determination, five judges from one party and four judges from the other. So... This is the way I have to come down on it, being a non-judicial candidate or non-partisan candidate. We can't ever have rulings coming down strictly along hard ideological lines. Mm -hmm. That is not the way of America. That is not what we're about. And mm. that's what's been going on. Well, and it frightens me because you see things like Justice Kennedy stepping down for no reason to make room for a politically appointed judge. When you see debts being paid off mysteriously for people who work in the judicial branch as they were with Brett Kavanaugh, and then suddenly he gets a seat and Justice Kennedy is out and again, Kennedy's son is involved and every, everything feels like it's been polluted by politics and it's not meant to. So I wonder when you think about that because you're, I know this about you because I know you, one of your favorite words in the English language is integrity. You you live it and you breathe it and you you encourage everyone around you when making decisions to make those decisions from their integrity. And I'm I'm curious now that we see the integrity of the court of of the judiciary being compromised. How do you think I mean where do you think we are? in terms of integrity and how do you think we get back to more of it? Boy, that is such a, an important question because the answer to the question could quote, save the Republic end quote. Mm. I mean, it's that important. Wow. Uh, when you mentioned Justice Kennedy, I mean, that that's a fact that was reported that his son had some connection whereby when he or I should say Justice Kennedy through his son had some connection that it made it questionable mm -hmm. when he suddenly retired because he wasn't ill, why he did that at the time. So I don't even need to make comment on it. It's been reported. So that means that something other than pure integrity, pure justice, pure fairness was at play. Mm -hmm. And so are we all perfect people? No, but we are too far from perfect these days. So we need to get mm. closer back to that. We need to strive to get back toward it. So we don't have to set a bar that says we all must be pure and perfect, but we're way too far from it right now. And so my feeling is that, and this is why I, I again, with the Kavanaugh hearings, I kind of leapt out of my seat and said, okay, I'm going to do something about this in the judiciary, is because even though I'm running for 
superior court, which is a trial court. And people say, well, Tom, that's that's the trial court. It's not the Supreme Court. And well, you can't run for the Supreme Court. But, <laughs> um, but it's the first step. And the reason I'm doing it is because I'm not just going to sit on the bench and, and just stop there. Mm. I want to be an active judge. And what I mean by that is I want to be able to represent the judiciary as being the person who is defending the judiciary in its purest sense, in its mm. truest form, and taking that defense wherever it has to go, whether it's in Sacramento in the state of California and, and doing whatever I need to do to improve the laws so that we improve the judiciary, mm. whether it's through passing laws, working with state legislators. I've already had discussions with some and they've said, I'd love to sponsor that bill and this is great thinking. But the idea there is to maybe improve the law so that those who end up on the bench are the kinds of people you want on the bench. Mm -hmm. Those with deep integrity, those with the experience and the background that end up there. So there are things that can be done mm. to improve the judiciary, to get better people on the bench. I really want to be that kind of person where people say, geez, I've never seen a judge out there talking about the judiciary mm. and, and kind of inspiring us to, as, a, as a people to try to find ways to improve it. And really carrying the torch of fairness, you know, as she is drawn, you know, our, our lady judgment, she's blindfolded, holding yeah. the scales, you yeah. know, they're meant to truly be unbiased and fair. And I think getting back to that would be very exciting. And if you notice on lady justices, not only does she have blindfolds, but those scales are even. Yeah. They're even. And I, you know, I keep telling people that um, sometimes when I go out to talk to clubs and organizations and whatnot, you know, on this campaign trail, and they say, well, you know, how would you rule this way? Or how would you rule that way? Well, the code of judicial ethics, which applies to candidates as well for, for judge, you know, we're not allowed to make comment on things that are presently before the court or mm. could come before the court. And I understand that. So what I tell people is remember that Lady Justice is blind and she also is holding scales that are equal so yeah. that if it's true justice, both parties come in and the judge should be absolutely equal. There should be no tipping of that scale either yep. way. And you have to have that facility as mm. a judge. You have to have it. So I would love to attract, I would first of all love to win this campaign so I can begin to be, become the change, but I would love to attract people to the bench. And I may, if I win and become a judge, I may go out there and start looking for those people who are like-minded and encourage them to run, you know, to be a judge because they're the, they're, they're the good people, you know, they're yeah. the kind of people you want to see there. To commit to that kind of to commit to service. It, to do it. So this episode's coming out right before your election, mm -hmm. which I'm very excited about. So if you're in LA and you are listening to this, please go and vote Tom Parsikian for seat 150. But as we talked about earlier, a lot of people don't really know how to do this kind of local research, maybe maybe don't pay as much attention to the smaller elections. Do you have a message for any of those people who maybe weren't planning on showing up on March 3rd, you yes. know, a, a, about the impact of these things? Well, <laughs> the impact is tremendous. First of all, mm. 
everyone, I think I mentioned way earlier on about this sense of despair that sometimes people have, a loss of hope or or whatnot. And I tell people, don't despair, don't lose hope because the way that you feel better about it is to use the power of your vote. The, the, The voting power is the most important, treasured, protected power that you have. Mm. You have to exercise it. Don't think I have something else to do or it's Mm. too difficult to look into this. You've got to exercise your vote because it's the only way we can make this change. So as far as judges Mm. go, there are ways you can do that. I know there's not much time. Certainly I would love for you to come vote for me in seat 150, but there are also, you'll see other judges on the ballot. So how do you find out about that? Go to the websites of these people, see what they stand for. And it's very easy because if you just take their name and you can go online and find out who's running for judge, you can look at any sample ballot and you can put their name in a Google search and you'll see, let's say their name is Smith. I guarantee you it'll be smithforjudge.com or something, (laughs) you know, and Google will get you there and you can find out, you know, who are these people? What are their backgrounds? You know, what do they think? And by the way, who are they supported by? You know, I mean, I'm so proud to be supported by so many great organizations, you know, around this county, like, you know, Stonewall Democratic Club is, you know, has endorsed me, you know, I mean, that's, you know, a particular group, a particular organization that represents a certain group of people who really have needs for people to have empathy Mm -hmm. and, and, and have, you know, understand people's trials and tribulations in day-to-day life, you know, or, you know, here in in LA, I'm, you know, endorsed by the LA Democratic Party. Well, uh, I also got a qualified rating from the LA County Bar Association. Why is that important? And why is that something something the voters should look into? You know, go to the LA County Bar website and find out how people were rated by them. Why is that important? Because Mm -hmm. the way you get a rating is so hard, it's so deep. You have to submit 75 references of judges that you've worked with, you have know, been in court with, of opposing counsel, of co-counsel, of clients that you've represented, of mm. maybe experts that you've used, people that you've used or come in front of in your work as a lawyer, not seven, 75. And they follow up by surveying every one of these 75 people and they call them on the phone. They interview them. So it's a really a deep, deep vetting process. So one of the things that simple things that people can do is if you see a list of candidates for a judge and you want to find out, go to the LA County Bar Association, mm-hmm. see how they rated them as qualified or well qualified or possibly not qualified. Mm-hmm. There are some candidates, you know, who'll get that rating and and then you can take that into account. Yeah. And something I think is so amazing is that Los Angeles County is actually larger mm-hmm. in population than 42 entire states in Isn't our union. So the judges here in LA County need to be able to handle a lot. Yes. LA County Superior Court is the largest and most complex trial court in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Our county, as you said, is bigger than 42 whole states. Mm-hmm. So being a judge in this court is critically important. Mm. Um, You want good people on the bench. And by the way, California leads the way in terms of its law. Mm. States follow our decisions. Mm -hmm. So when we set precedent here in California, yes, it's precedent here in California, but it's also followed by other states. Mm. So yeah, it's a big, important county. And can you kind of walk us through the role? The role of a judge? 
or yeah, the role of a judge here in in LA County. What what, what will that look like for you? Yeah. So for me, the way it works, and I'm really proud, by the way. I mean, Talking about endorsements, this is kind of a proud one. It's non-political. I've been endorsed by the presiding judge, Kevin Brazil, who is the chief, runs the whole court system. That's so cool. I know. And and <laughs> and the assistant presiding judge, who's going to become the presiding judge because there's two-year terms mm. next January. So I've gotten the endorsement of both the chief and the assistant chief. Mm. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because Kevin Brazil, who's the present presiding judge, is the first African-American presiding judge in the history of the Los Angeles County Superior Court. And he's a wonderful, brilliant judge, you know, mm-hmm. educated UCLA law, but he's more than that. He's my kind of guy. He's, he's one of those people that has that deep empathy mm-hmm. for people. He's a real, uh, if you met him, he just is a, um, just one of the people you meet and you just know he has character, integrity, and empathy. So mm-hmm. he's, he's endorsed me. And the reason I bring him up is to answer your question they're the people who make the decision as to where you're put. Yeah. So when if you win and you're now going to be a judge of the entire county, you have the jurisdiction of this whole county of 11 million people and all of these courtrooms, where does the judge, chief judge here, the presiding judge, place you? Well, they take a lot of things into account. Of course, it's going to be your years of experience. You know, how long have you been doing this? Is it 15 years or 30 years? Yeah. What is your background? You know, is your background in complex litigation or some other kind? Or is your background as a prosecutor? Mm-hmm. You know, you've been doing only prosecuting, you know, as a district attorney and that's your area. So they take all those things into account. And hopefully, as I cross my fingers, they take into account where you physically live because how how easy is it in LA traffic to get to the courthouse you're going to be assigned Ooh, to? That so that commute. Yeah, the commute. So for me, I cross my fingers and pray that I get assigned to the central, which is downtown, what's called the Mosque, Stanley Mosque Courthouse, because I could actually take the subway. That'd from my so house to cool. court. And as I've told people, I'm going to be, quote, judge on the train. <laughs> Love <laughs> Riding that. to court. I, I want to be able to take public transportation to court every day. And I would be so thrilled to do that, you yeah. know. And it's wonderful because most people in L.A. don't even know that we have subways, but we do. Yeah. And I take them as w- whenever I can. So, you know, there uh, he would assign to the courts. And then my role would be as a trial judge making decisions, uh, you know, whether it's in front Mm -hmm. of a jury uh, Mm -hmm. or myself alone, which is a bench trial or a jury trial for whatever comes into court. And I can tell you that they can assign you to do anything. It's up to the presiding judge. You can be doing, you know, criminal courts, civil courts, family courts. Yeah, they can put Mm -hmm. you anywhere. So you could be handling anything. And now that's true for judges around the country, correct? Well, Anyone who's running for a a, a superior yes superior court, court trial court a trial court. Yeah. Okay, so when when we're talking about these different judgeships, and you know, you mentioned where to where to go and what to look at here in LA County, but. Likewise, anyone in any state or county should be able to look up who's running for judge in this next election, and then you would just recommend that they go on Google their records 
and and look for who in their court system already has endorsed them? Th- those would be the questions yeah. they should yes, get into? Yes, I think they should go to their local county, that county's bar association. The bar association yes. website, okay. Right. Now, it's not, you know, you're, there's so many counties in the United States. Right. Not every county may follow this system, but it, mm. they most should. If it's not the county bar, it could be the state bar. Okay. They could have a, a similar thing. So start so, at the county and then yes. check the state. Yes, to see if they've done a rating of those judges. Have they... Mm. Have they brought them in for a deep vetting process and Mm. then determined what they think about that particular candidate? That's one way to go. Then the next way to go is to look on, you know, Google their name, find out, because everyone sets up a website, find out what their thinking is, because they're going to have on that website what their view of the world is, how they view things. You're going to get a quick sense of what kind of person this is that wants to be on the bench making these critical decisions. And then the third level is look at who's endorsing them, who's backing them up. What, what kind of people are they mm. who are supporting them? Because that's going to give you another sense. So that's my recommendation to voters across Great. the country. Great. Go to your, you know, Google this person, go to the local, the county bar or the state bar, find out if they've been rated, find out what that rating is, and then look at who's endorsing them and then look on their website to find out what kind of people these are. And please mm. do that because these people are going to end up making decisions in this courtroom that you might end up standing in. Yep, And you want these people to be fair-minded people who render and administer equal and fair justice to everybody, no matter their circumstance or background. Mm-hmm. And thank you. Those action items are so helpful. I, I love being able to give listeners specifics. And I think it's important, too, to your point, this could just take a little, a couple of minutes on an afternoon. Yep. You could spend 10, 20, 30 minutes if you got really fascinated about something somebody may have you know, put up, it, it's not going to take days, but, yeah. but a little bit will really go a long way here. Yep. And, and for anyone listening here in LA County, your website is parsikianforjudge.com. Really simple. <laughs> and we'll put it in our stories, guys. You'll be able to swipe up and get it on, on the work in progress Instagram, which brings me, Tom, my dear, to my last question for you, which I ask everyone. Okay. The podcast is called work in progress. Okay. And when you hear that phrase, I'm curious, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life right now? Wow. That is, you just brought us full circle because that is what I am trying to, we are, we are a work in progress, Mm -hmm. first of all. And work in progress, what that means to me is it's, it's, it's a teachable uh, phrase in a sense that we need to get to work to create progress for me Ooh. in the court system, yes. We so. need to get to work to create progress. Yeah. Tom, no one has answered that question that way. That's what it is. I love that. Yeah. And that's what I really, really want to do. And I, you know, I, you know, people sometimes say, well, you're running for election and you, you know, you'll say this or that. No, 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 no. I, I really mean this in the deepest, deepest part of my heart and soul that we need to do that. And that's why I'm here and doing this. We're going to get to work to create that progress in the judiciary because it's so important in our country. I love that. I'm just so inspired by you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to vote for you on Tuesday. Good. (laughs) So what's really important to know is that people are voting on Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020. (laughs) And uh, you got to get out there to vote on March 3rd, 2020. So on Tuesday, make sure you exercise your power to vote. Indeed. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. 
This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.